get on with the stupid Bob Sacamano story? Well, I'm on the phone with Bob, and I realize right then and there that I need to return this pair of pants. So I'm off to the store. What happened to Bob Sacamano? Well, nothing. His part of the story is done. <laughs> so I'm waiting for the subway. It's not coming, so I decided to hoof it through the tunnel. All right, well, now that's something. Well, I don't know if I lost track of time or what, but the next thing I knew... A train I... is bearing down on you? No, I slipped and fell in mud, ruining the very pants I was about to return. I don't understand. You were wearing the pants you were returning? I guess I was. What are you going to wear on the way back? Elaine, are you listening? I didn't even get there. Story. All right, I think I've got enough for one day. Yeah, yeah, two. Yeah, I'll chew. Oh, hey, listen, by the way, uh, I'm hosting a little get-together tonight in honor of my little financial upturn. Oh, thanks, I've got plans. Yeah, Elaine, you should be there to document it. Oh, you're getting together with some of your jackass friends? You want me to take notes? Yeah, but get there after nine. You know, give the people a chance to loosen up. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. You've been so kind and generous. I don't know how you keep on giving. For your kindness, I'm in debt to you. For your selfishness, my admiration. For everything you've done, you know I'm bound. I'm bound to thank you for it. La 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 Sarah McLaughlin, thank you. So close. So close. Think again. Think. Go back to Michigan. Hanging with uh, Uncle Bob. 10,000 Maniacs. Yes. Merchant. Yes. Damn. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That was... That took me on a roller coaster. I thought for sure you were trying to sing The Killers for some reason. Yeah, I know. The, you know, the so the song's called Kind and Generous. That song, that chorus is so prolific, but... No one remembers the intro very well. You know, it's yeah. like one of those type of songs. Oh, yeah. There was, it was just a lot of noise. I'm like, all right, Bob, let's get <laughs> on with it. But I knew you could get that. Could it, it took us back to a very vibrant moment in our lives. Yeah. Yep. Dang. Nice work, Bob. Thanks for that one. I was just in my head. All I've been singing is the boys are back in town. The boys are back in town. The boys are back in town. You know, it's, it's that song is so good for today. The listeners don't know this because we haven't podcasted in forever, but we're still on the publishing schedule that should be by the week, right? So listeners should know that we are rusty as rusty as it comes around here. Rusty as all get out. Yep. One thing I was going to ask you about, Dave, is will you and I... We're both very busy this weekend, and I was curious if you could tell us a little bit about like some of the things that you're juggling. Yeah, well, can I start by making a a first, a thriving in dystopia first? Of course. 
it's it's a big it's an announcement. We have a friend, Bob, who is six months pregnant, and you have no idea who this friend is. Oh wow! I feel like I know of a friend who is six months pregnant. Yep. Uh, you know of a friend who is like a few days away from giving birth as well. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, so, you know, Elise Diner, I don't think she's an Owens, but she gives birth on Wednesday. It's twins. So you have to do a little more scheduling and whatnot because it always gets complicated there at the end. So you want to know who our friend is, Bob? I would love to hear. Allison Harris. Oh, wow. That's lovely. I could have, I could have like, if I had a better detective brain, I could have figured out who it was based upon what I know about you over the last week. Yeah. And I just asked her if I could announce it on the podcast and she gave me the big emoji up. Oh, nice. Love the big up emoji. Congratulations to Dave and Al. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yep. They're going to, it's looking like another Leo baby, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, Al Harris is um, Dave Harris's partner, friend of the podcast. That's right. Dave was on a few episodes, maybe 18 and 19. I was going to say 23 and 24, but who's, who's counting, but he's coming back for this season. Hopefully. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We got to get Dave one quarter of the way to TH <laughs> to TLC halfway to TLC three quarters to TLC, and then on the TLC episode. There it is. (laughs) Um, I think we got to do the wonderful format for our TLC episode. Oh, nice. Yeah, that does sound good. A small wonder, a small TLC wonder. Um, Either that or we'll have like 12 people on. That's true. Yeah, we could have just a a symphony of voices. (laughs) Um, So it was our mom's birthday, Bob. Yeah, it was. She is not an octogenarian yet. She is 79. And one of the big things I did with her was I went on a bike ride. Oh, nice. How was that? It was brutal. We went up NCAR. And NCAR is not, not much of a mountain by Boulder standards, but by um, for, for our... Uh, Poudre Valley inhabitants, it's something? It's something, yeah. And I was like, my, uh, mom got an e-bike and she, she was just like cruising next to me and I was sweating so bad. My Did she parents, go up and come back? Did she like lap you? She could have, but I, I mean, gosh, I was sweating so bad, Bob. I, at one point I was sweating so bad. Mom asked if I was peeing myself. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a muggy day out there on NCAR. <laughs> and Bob's thinking, the, you know, she's so good at physics. She knows through capillary action, it's going to rise up into your pits. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. It was bad. Anyway, um, and she was just cruising. She didn't break a sweat. Um, but then she went 35 miles an hour down the hill. And it was way too fast. Shit, that is way too fast for yeah. a seventy-nine-year-old woman to be going down on a bicycle. Yeah, I, no, she she was. I mean, I was going like thirty, thirty-two, but I was losing her. You know, mom, if you're out there listening right now, you, you your max speed is thirty. <laughs> oh no, I was gonna say twenty-one, Bob. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah, 
um, I was just like, anyway, yeah, I was freaking out. And she said, another weekend check-in is we had a Memorial Day barbecue with the Cantrics and the Harrises. And um, yeah, I, uh, mom said, are you're not going to talk about this on the podcast, are you? And I said, sorry, mom, it's already in there. It's already <laughs> happening. <laughs> That's funny. As if it was already recorded. Yeah, I like that, Dave. The The idea that time has no meaning in thriving in dystopia world. Yeah, it really doesn't. Uh, it's like um, it's like that new Chris Pratt movie, Future War. You can take your word for it. I haven't seen the trailers yet. Yeah. Oh, I mean, time has no meaning. They, it's f- People from the future are in a war with aliens, and they have to go back to the past to recruit people to fight the war. Wow. Nice. Yeah. So time has no meaning. But I only mention that because another thing I did this weekend was watch a bunch of movie trailers. Um, Dave Harris said, I really loved your Oscar episode. I love the idea that someone is going to come across that and they're going to find two guys. One guy's seen half a movie and the other guy saw <laughs> one trailer. <laughs> hey, hey, I did my homework. I saw four out of the eight Oscar nominees. <laughs> And I was supposed to be the shitty guy, you know? Yeah, I really blew it. I saw two, maybe three trailers. I watched one during the podcast. At one point in life, you watched every single movie on the IMDb Top 250. Yeah. That's who I thought I was dealing with. Yeah, that was me. That was a younger me. Now I just watch The Circle and (laughs) make, make bold predictions about Courtney. Haven't seen it. No spoilers. Good. I'm still working on it myself. Good. Um, yeah, I got one more thing to check in about, please. Um, it, it feels like a Seinfeld moment. So I ordered a, we're going to a wedding in Cleveland and I like, it's just hard to dress for weddings these days. You know what I mean? Um, because yeah, they have the, the website, the black tux and that's great. And yeah, maybe some people own like a black black tux already um but i was like oh man like once you once you're all in with one of these outfits you're spending like two or three hundred dollars and i'm like you know what i'm just gonna go to i'm just gonna buy a suit um i'm not gonna buy a tux i'm gonna buy a nice black tie suit and i ordered two different sizes off the men's warehouse website neither of them fit and so i like was going out to um, like going out to return them and go to men's warehouse. Cause I was like, Oh, this is just such a nightmare. Spent $600. Got to return all these suits And on my way out. I decided to go run. I was like, ah, I better go check for eggs on the chickens. And I was going out and it's raining really bad here. And I just like slipped, and <laughs> went flying into the mud. Oh man. And I was absolutely tip to tail covered in mud, but my suits were fine. No way. Yeah. How did that work? They were, they, they were like wrapped in the bags. You know what I mean? No. So I ran and did laundry real quick and I was like, Oh, thank God. Wait, did that happen today? Yeah, that just happened. Oh my God. Like an hour ago. Yeah. That, so I was a little bit delayed to start our podcast. Oh shit, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. That just happened. <laughs> the very pants I was going to return. 
Oh, that's, yeah, that is totally, that's how you intro this, a total Seinfeld moment. Yeah, I'll have to find that clip for our intro this yeah. week. Oh, that'd be good. That's, just, that's perfect. Yes. <laughs> the Jake Peterman story, <laughs> buying stories off Kramer. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, anyway, Bob, yeah, sorry. I know you had more, more of an intro. You knew I was going to, didn't know I was going to launch into all that. No, that's what I wanted. I because I knew we were juggling a lot coming to this episode. I was curious what the balls were up in your air. Yeah. Yep. What do you got going on? Well, I just got back from a camping trip and it was really excellent. It was really good to be on like this little thing called a vacation for the first time in 19 months, maybe, maybe not quite that many since last February, 2019. And, uh, Kiki and I went to a little place called Mendocino Grove, which is like basically like glamping. Um, like they have little tents, um, that are already made. Um, but it still felt amazing. And Mendocino is so far out there. Um, just it's five hours away from where we live, five hours North. And there's still like so far to go to even get to the Oregon border. I thought about our trips to visit you when you lived in Southern Oregon. Um, and I had been through that little town of Mendocino with mom back in 2014, I want to say, when mom and I visited the Sweeney sisters, which, oh man, it'd be great if the Sweeney sisters listened to the podcast, but I don't think they do. <laughs> but maybe I'll send them this episode. Um, and yeah, it, would, it was just, it felt amazing to actually be on vacation and like, just talk to people, like talk to random people, um, you know, like one of the employees at the, the campsite and then this tour guide at, in Mendocino. Um, and yeah, they're both characters for sure. Um, the, the tour guide was like huge curly hair and huge curly beard and it was all white. He's like an old guy. And he was just like, when we got into there, he was chatting the ear off this other couple. And then they sort of like slipped by him. And then he got hold of us and he was just ch- chatting our ears off. You know, this man could have been talking 24 hours about the town of Mendocino, one of those types, but that's, a, that's cool. You know, that's what you want when yeah. you're a traveler. Um, and he told us that, Pomo are the indigenous people to that area and they had to deal with colonization. Well, I guess Russian travelers, Spanish colonization, Mexicans, Americans. So the Pomo have seen a lot. Um, and Mm. I guess that's actually a redwood foresting village and it built a lot of San Francisco, um, 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. Little Um, trivia for y'all. Mendo. Yeah. And Mendo is half wine country, half weed country. Um, so there's so many vineyards and then there's like, I know there's a lot of grow places. I don't know where, you know, you don't see those, but you know, they're there. Right. It's like the Southern dot of the green triangle, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's like the Northern dot of the wine of wine country. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a pretty weird little spot. Yeah, it is. Very weird. Um, There's this ultra-conservative shop in Mendocino, which is a progressive town. You know, they had like 
Biden and Harris stuff up and things like that. But there's a super conservative shop that said, had a sign that said, if you come in and order, there's a $5 fee if you order with a mask on. What? Yeah. And wow. it said like, it had like a lot of Trump-like propaganda, anti-mask, anti-vax stuff. Um, and it was the only place like that in the whole town that we could see. Um, like other, other shops were selling like Black Lives Matter and queer flags and things like that. So it was, it was so interesting to see that rift. Damn. That sounds like the state of Jefferson right there. Yeah, there's definitely state of Jefferson in Mendocino for sure. I would say so. Dang. I would say, think of state of Jefferson. You know, it, we always think of it reaching from California to Oregon, but it also reaches into Idaho uh-huh. and Montana and Eastern Washington. And it's this massive area, which is kind of frightening. <laughs> yeah, right. Like Quite Northern Idaho. And Northern Idaho, Eastern Washington, Southern Oregon, Northern California, and ah, anywhere outside of Missoula in Montana. Yeah, probably. Exactly. This like yeah. vortex of ultra conservatism and white supremacy. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to say about all this is this is probably the last road trip for um, the Animal Accord, aka Terry, aka 2004 Honda Accord. Uh, that car means a lot to a lot of people, not just you, me and you, but also people like Nick Cantrick, Weston, yeah. of course, my yeah. partner, Kiki, a lot of people yeah. know that car. Um, and it's just, it's, it, it's too old. It scared me. It's been scaring me for years, but now like the key, like it's jammed when you're putting it in the ignition a little bit. And I'm like, Oh God, if that breaks, that's it. So yeah, I just want to announce that to all the listeners out there and also, um, yeah, tell people I'm looking for a car, but that's a different story. Would you say that your car situation went from 1985 Chrysler LeBaron to 2004 Animal Accord? Yeah, with a very brief, um, what was it, like a 1997 Eight. Ford Windstar? Yeah. Yeah. I miss the MT Mobile. I MT. Dang. You so is your next car gonna be blue? I would love for it to be blue. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. like I'm my preference is blue. Yeah. Yeah. That sense. I can see that, Bob. You're yeah. a blue guy. I'm a blue guy, big blue guy. I'm a rainbow guy. I like all the colors. Nice. That's a good answer. Yeah. Nice, Bob. Ugh. Sad to see Terry go. Happy, happy you made it to the green. Hey, let me ask you a quick did you know. What are the three cities of the Green Triangle in California? Oh, definitely Redding is a big one. Is, oh, actually, oh no, that's state of Jefferson. I'm sorry. The cities of Green Triangle would be probably um, Garberville in uh, Humboldt County. Maybe Arcata up in Humboldt County and in Mendocino County, Ukiah is a pretty big hub for it. And maybe Willits. My thoughts were that it was like Humboldt was the like Northern coast spot. Mendo Mendocino is the Southern coast. And then it goes like inwards. And I thought it was Eureka. Eureka. Very. Yeah. Eureka is by Arcata. They're very close to one another. So I would say. Yep. Maybe it is Arcata. I think those would be the three. Nice, Bob. Yeah. 
That's God, a yeah. crazy guy on a bike bike tour 2007 territory. Yeah, check out that blog spot. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Great writing. Yeah. Oh man, we are I feel like here's the thing. I feel like I have like about 200 more things we could uh what do you call it? Bullshit about? Yep. Um but we're already you know, 18 minutes in. Yeah, add you add our intros and we're we're looking at 25 minutes at this point, Bob. Yeah, we, we definitely got to get into the um, stuff peppers. Yeah, let's get into it. So, yeah, because I'm also really excited about this episode. I don't really know quite how to, how to walk you all down this path. So maybe I'll let you intro it, Bob, and I can do some of the steps. Yeah, so this is episode two of the new season, I think season seven about another world being possible as like a way of life, a philosophy, an inspiration. And so we thought, why don't we start with something that's very, you know, in our lives and was a big turning point moment for us um, in this philosophy. And maybe not turning point, but like just key moment. And this is like the question of like, how did Dave get to living in Chiapas, Mexico for six months and like that question. And then Bob and Dave going from there, from San Cristobal to Oventique, one of the six Zapatista caracoles. Um, And this all being relevant because the Zapatistas are so important in just the idea of another world being possible and the practice of it because they've put that into practice. They were living in this authoritarian Mexican state under colonization, but they didn't take that as an inevitability. And they say, no, another world is possible. And they've been living it for almost the last 30 years. So just want to deconstruct that whole story. And I don't know, I thought starting about like, yeah, the question of like, how did you ever get to living in Chiapas to make this possible? If you could talk about that to, to get us into it. Yeah, I, I also think it's super important to give a little background on the Zapatistas. So I'll start with my own personal story because the whole reason that pulls that pulls almost anyone to Chiapas these days is the Zapatistas, right? So there's this idea of Zapaterismo, which is like um, young radicals from across the globe going to Chiapas to sort of experience th- what um, the indigenous population in Chiapas, n- n- now known as the Zapatistas, named after Emiliano Zapato, um, who, who we don't need to go into his history, but he's a very important guy that um, really shaped Latin American politics, but also um, the Mexican state in general. Um, and he, anyway, so yeah, this idea of Zapaterismo is like where young radicals go to experience this other world that has been created by the Zapatistas. Right. Um, and I'll let you break down some of the history and I'll fill in some of those gaps, but it like really like stems back to, I can't remember the author's name, but it, it, what is the name of the book that I'm thinking of Bob with, um, the Zapatistas and the Baltic state. Oh, Yes. 
Wobblies and Zapatistas, um, yeah. Andre Grubacek and Strouton Lynn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Grubacek is like a Baltic guy and the Baltics are in a very similar position to the Zapatistas, right? So they've been like fighting since, I mean, since before Clinton, but they came into like the American mind frame during the Clinton years and sort of like taking this idea of like the Baltic states and finding a sense of, yeah, just like this rebellion and freedom that they created. Um, and they had s- some successes, but some serious setbacks too. And so Grubacek looked deep into like successful anarchist movements for this book that he was writing um, called The Wobblies and the Zapatistas, where he sat down with, um, what's his name, Bob, the other guy? Um, I always forget about some like Stratton Lind. Yeah. And he, that guy is like, um, he's like a scholar on like the wobblies, which, um, you know, go back and listen to Dan Cantrick on poetry. If you want some more wobbly knowledge, I think that's episode what, like 42. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, probably, probably earlier than that. 37. Earlier. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, so that was like a, a defining moment. And I got pulled to that book through our work at left hand books and we would, you know, left hand books, isn't it a defunct anarchist bookstore, um, that ran for 30 years out of Boulder, Colorado and shaped a lot of young minds in the Boulder scene and yeah, brought a lot of people together in a lot of good ways. Um, props to mean Jean. Uh, anyhow. Um, yeah. And I think I'd listened to, uh, I mean, there's this, an, another guy, David Barsamian, who does a, a radio show that I am forgetting the name of what's his show. Oh, called? Yeah, Alternative radio. Yep. And he's been doing that in Boulder for 30 years. Um, anyways, big hero of the, the 1960s leftist movement. And, um, yeah also a fan of shopping at the farmer's market when I used to work there. That's right. Yeah. You guys had a few conversations. It was always great to see Barsami on coming to the black cat food stand. (laughs) That's right. I would just load them up with seconds on tomatoes. Like, come on, Barsami on you, you know, you need these. Keep that fuel going, bud. Uh, It's an amazing connection. Dave Maisler working for black cat arms, 2008. That's good knowledge. So um, anyway, there was always like really great talks. He would just put like really, you know, you would be listening to these shows and just learn about like really new ideas on thinking. Um, and I think that's how I first got turned on to group check and then the Zapatistas in general and Noam Chomsky talking about the Latin American rebellion and how, you know, at the time South America, this, this, um, the States of South America, political state sort of being a new hope for the world, um, which has since crumbled in a lot of ways, but that was like, there's just like so much hope there. Right. And it was like this moment where I'm like, I I'm into it. Like, this is like the answer in so many ways. Like what? And yeah, like we've like since come to a better understanding, but like the, yeah, it was like a strong leftist movement, the new Latin America. And, um, yeah, that book was just like, this is it. Like, what's happening down there um, in Chiapas? And 
you know, with, God, it's just hard to like say everything. So I'll let you talk for a little bit too. Yeah, that, yeah, it's reminding me what you're talking about around how you were really focused for a good while on Latin American politics. Because I, yeah, I hadn't remembered that it's actually for you definitely extended into Venezuelan politics. And you and Nick were going to go live in Venezuela in 2008 or 2009. Um, you serious planning, serious planning went into that. The trip didn't happen, but you guys made a lot of serious steps. Um, so yeah, we all, I mean, I think I was a little bit more focused on maybe Mexican. No, I mean, I mean you and Nick were really into Venezuelan politics. Um, so that's off to the two of you for sure. And the Zapatistas were for me. Yeah. We all kind of got into them through both left-hand books and then listening to Rage Against the Machine, right? Oh yeah, of course. Another big influence. They're so connected to the Zapatistas. So I remember we got into Rage in 1999-ish and the Zapatistas led the revolution, their revolution in 1994 or started it in 94 and the insurrection as well. Um, And so... Yeah, I think when we were younger, teenagers, I still think we were influenced by them through music, through rage. Um, so I think they just felt like, ah, yes, like the Zapatistas, I've loved them. I don't really know that much. Like early on in the 2000s, we we're like, we don't really know that much, but we, we know we need to know more and we need to learn and we need to know that because there's something there that just seems amazing um, and magical. And it, it really is. Um, so... Yeah, I, I would just say also that um, there's lots of us, you know, like you said, that Zapoturismo, a lot of leftists in the United States are like, ah, yes, I need to go visit Chiapas because um, they're sort of like romanticizing. I would say I, w- I, I romanticize the Zapatistas for sure. Um, and, but I would, I'd also ask you an interesting turn is like, there's a lot of folks like me and others, but you actually made it down there which I think is a pretty profound next step. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Can we give the history of the Zapatistas a little bit? Oh, yeah. A little bit more Uh, since 94. Yeah, there is... I remember mom's friend Namino gave us a book and I read most of it, like this anthropology, cultural anthropology of Chiapas. Um, And it talks about how the revolution was being built for at least 25 years before 94 through churches, um, through liberation theology, through what was happening in Nicaragua and um, throughout Central America in the 1980s, you know, the Sandinistas and uh, the guerrilla fighters in El Salvador and other places as well. Um, And then also, so that was always already there, but then Marcos and others come, I think they know that. And Marcos and others, these are like Northern Mexican, like middle class academics. Um, I wouldn't say say Northern Mexico. I would, I mean, I guess I feel like Mexico is broken up into three spots, right? Northern Mexico, Southern Mexico, and uh, Ciudad Mexico. Oh, you're right. No, I shouldn't, shouldn't say that. But I think I, the reason I use the term is that's what the Zapatistas called them or the indigenous people because they're Mm -hmm. all North of um, Chiapas. Right. Which is true. Um, Like anyone that's, like it's very different, right? So like Chiapas like is very close to the Guatemalan border. It, I mean, it borders Guatemala, 
right? It's um, very far south, and it's the roots are Mayan as opposed to like the rest of Mexico, not the rest, obviously, but like the majority of the rest of Mexico being Aztec, right? So like, yeah. it's like Mayan, it's like rooted in Mayan traditions. So like, but I, I feel like anyone from DF or what's now called Ciudad Mexico is like, you know, and the word is Chilango. Someone from there is like very much apart from Northern Mexico. Northern Mexico is much more like Texas, right? It's like Tejano. Yeah, northern Northern Mexico, like yeah, what what people from DFA would call Northern Mexico is definitely right. like yeah, like where you studied, yeah, and Monterrey, Tamaulipas. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, not Tamaulipas, the one next to Tamaulipas. Yeah, Nuevo yeah. León. That's it. Yeah. Puro Durango's <laughs> Durango's there too. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I don't mean to slow your roll too much because we could do a whole episode on Mexico history probably, but yep. Yeah. Oh, so let's see Zapatista. So that's all like the, the fertile soil for revolution to eventually go to an insurrection. And we should say that the, the academics like Marcos and others were totally humbled. Some of them left. Marcos mm-hmm. himself was like, I had all these ideas how I was going to lead the revolution and I was so wrong. Mm-hmm. And I got, like, like the indigenous 500 years of fighting colonization that he's like, I want to follow that, you know? And so that's a beautiful part of Marcos being like, I like this elitism that got served, but then Marcos also like learning and him using his privilege, which I feel like in a revolutionary way. Um, so anyways, that's a little bit of an aside. The... (laughs) Zapatistas were able to like hold off the Mexican government for, I mean, this is, there's a lot of interesting history, like fighting and um, like actually some really awful stuff as, as well. Some like um, massacres. Um, but the, the quick story is that the Zapatistas won a degree of autonomy from the Mexican state over the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And they like are not, they don't have full support amongst the indigenous people, but they have very widespread support in um, Chiapas and they've established these six caracoles, snail shells, which are like these sort of political um, structures for Zapatista society um, where there's like spiraling out uh, very like centered in non-hierarchical and very interconnectedness um, like indigenous cosmologies. So, yeah, and they're also still like wanting to change the whole world. You know, they they realize their revolution will only ever work if the whole world um, follows. You know, so th- I mean, they've had so much important solidarity to like Palestine and um, Black the Black Panther, like or Black struggles in the United States and around the world um, and other places too. So, uh, yeah, I mean. That's where we sort of like when you entered Chiapas, the Zapatistas had been for around for a long time. And in this sort of detente with the Mexican state um, and the paramilitaries, like the right wing forces that threaten Zapatistas as well. Um, yeah. And oh, one more thing that the Zapatistas are really into education. So mm-hmm. their schools, they have like s- conferences and schools um, and spreading 
this like radical education around the world is a part of their, um, yeah, I, their philosophy. Yeah. I'll just say uh, uh, one more thing about the Caracoles is like they are like a structure that is based on like these, you know, it's, it's nebulous in a lot of ways, but it is like the idea that like there are families that make up a community and those communities make up like a, a greater township and those townships make up a, a caracole, right? And it could be like 300 families and, you know, a bunch of little townships and then, or communities and then, you know, like seven or eight townships and then that makes up the caracole, right? Um, and then all the, ca- the caracoles together make up the majority of Eastern Chiapas, right? So like Chiapas is broken down the middle and like, not broken, but like you can imagine it down the middle, like a line down the middle and the town of San Cristobal de la, de las Casas where, or also known as San Cris is like where Julie and I spent the majority of our Chiapas time. And that sits, it's, it's a pretty important spot because it's like you travel all the way up the mountains, get to the, the peak and that is where San Cris sits. And on one side you have La Selva, like the Lacondon jungle. And on the other side you have like the low lowlands, right? Yeah. And the lowlands is where the majority of people have always lived. Um and it is like a much more hospitable spot, you know, and the the caracoles make up the majority of the Lacondon jungle. Or maybe not the majority, but like that is like it's mostly under Zapatista control. When I think that that dynamic is an important dynamic, the Zapatistas didn't create the family units. They didn't create the communities. Those were like indigenous created and they've been around forever. Right. Um, And another super, super important thing to mention is that the Zapatista movement is directly connected with indigenous rights, but it's also connected with the rights of the, of women who have yeah. been the struggle of women in subservient role in Mexico, but um, like in particular in these indigenous communities. And it's like through the work of the women and like most, like most people have heard of like Subcomandante Marcos. And I, I like, I know that name very well. Um, and I, you know, there are, but like the, the people that have like pushed the movement have been these like little Mayan women, right. That have like been powerful and have, you know, so, like I've, I read a book about the voices of the women and I'm not going to remember any of their names, which is a shame, but I think Imelda is one. I think the, like the one that I know the best is Comandante Ramona. Oh, Ramona. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, these little women who have experienced a ton of trauma in their life and been empowered um, through the movement and stepped up into these roles of like, I mean, that is in a lot of ways, it's like the, it's a matriarchal culture, but it's been like taken over by the European patriarchy. Right. But there are anyway, um, it's, it's just an important note. And I feel like the Zapatista movement would not have existed without these, these women that have been so well-spoken and, educated themselves and educated the world. So yeah. And it is like, it's really touchy, right? Because you know, the Mexican government has brought tanks and paramilitary and guns and into the jungles. Right. And in a lot of ways, it's just like 
this idea of like the, I mean, the, the EZLN, the Zapatista army is like known for their masks, right? They're like black ski caps. And that is like, gives so much power because it's like you're part of a team and you're also faceless. And it's like such a beautiful, easy thing to do that has been like an empowering thing. But, you know, there has been bloodshed. There has been like battles and like, uh, it's not like, it's a, it's like a revolution. It's not just like a rebellion. It's not just like reform. It is a serious revolution that has been like fought for 20, 30 years now, almost. Um, yeah. So you, you know, we go down to San Cristobal and it's like, it's booming because of this Zapaturismo that's happening, right? There are language, there's like five or six language schools in this tiny little town. There's like this like new, there's like all this like vegan food and like spots for what, yeah, like what you would see in like a San Francisco, <laughs> um, like schwanky eatery, you know? So it's like this really mixed bag, but then you also see like graffiti from, um, uh, yeah, just like these like feelings of like revolutionary, like the revolution is still here and happening, right? So you're at this like battleground spot, and I don't know. I th- I guess the reason I mentioned that is because yes, the Zapatistas are like open to the world, and they know that this revolution needs to be shared if another world is ever going to be possible they know that it needs to be shared but it's also like it's not just like an open like hey come on in like yeah it's so great to have your energy here it's like uh, you can talk about the checkpoint a little bit bob yeah i'll take us back a step and just go back to like our journey to oventique and what that was like um, so we, you were living there for about four months. So you had a pretty good lay of the land in San, San Cris. And I came and visited you with mom. We had a great trip. Mom and I flying down, um, meeting up and I think it was Dallas. Anyways, um, you and I made the plans to take a day to go to Oventique. And after you introduced me to San Cristobal, which I really love, I love that city. I just got such good vibes from it in in every way. Um, We, and the Zapatistas have a little shop there where they're selling um, like bandanas and balaclavas, books, posters, things like that, which was fun. Um, And got, got me really wanting to go to Oventique. So we, we we caught um, one of those like truck buses. What, what what are those called? I think they're called combis, right? Yeah, that's right. But I don't I don't know exactly what the word combi comes from. Combinacion. But yeah, maybe that's like a name for a type of vehicle, like half bus, half car. Yeah. So you catch your combi, which are like, or maybe yeah, maybe they're also called colectivos. I don't know, but like yeah, they're little. They were. That was another word. Anyway, yeah. So reminds me of Urbano. Yeah. But anyway, so you collecti- Yeah. Because um, we got to get Urbano listening to the podcast. Yeah. He'd be real interested. Anyway, yeah. So we catch 
like it's very much like you don't know there's like no bus stops you don't know where you're going you have to like communicate on how to like catch a combi or where they're going and oh it felt like wild like it's like i don't know i think you had the knowledge enough living there to be able to pull it off but i feel like your average person not from mexico would have no idea it was so like non-normative to u.s standards so it was fun and it felt like oh shit are we gonna get driven out into the countryside and are we gonna die out here because we had to drive a long ass way right yeah and yeah we i think we had to catch a couple of colectivos like we had to because like sometimes the colectivo is not going your way so you have to like hop off to hop on to wait for the next one you know that's right once you get far enough into the countryside, it's like you just wait for whatever car comes by. That's true. You're just like, are you, can you give us a hand here? Yeah. But I mean, language is like the, the crucial factor, right? Like, yeah. If you don't have language, you're, it's very difficult to make those things happen because you need to be able to communicate. Which is interesting because I'll get to the language thing in a second, I guess. Um, but yeah, we, I don't know. It was like at least an hour to get out to Oventique, which is, yeah, just, it, I mean, it's a beautiful ride, but it was like a little bit scary mm-hmm. um, just because we're like so far out there. And yep. also the road wasn't particularly good and it was really hot and I felt like we didn't have quite enough water as well. Anyways, we, we get dropped off and it's kind of like nothing's there. There's like a few buildings on the left side of the road and then there's like a gate to the right side. And you can see like, oh, down the hill, there's more buildings on the right side. Mm-hmm. But even the building on the left side was cool because it was a school and there's a famous mural that's on that building. Um, but we like, we walked over to the gate and there's, I think there's three men. They look like men, like masculine figures with balaclavas on. And we said, we'd like to like just tour. I think is that, that's what we said. And like, we're, we could like give mutual aid or like, we're happy to like contribute. Um, and they've conferred for a bit and then they came back and like one of them was like our tour guide. But the thing is like the conversations with him were so limited. It was like, does this guy not like us? Um, like, does he not speak that much Spanish? Does he speak mostly Mayan or, you know, like, Sotzil? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was unclear. So he took us on a little tour, but I wanted more, but it just didn't feel like the vibe wasn't there for it. Um, but it was, it was awesome to see the different buildings. There were some people there, there were shops. Um, and yeah. What was your experience like being there? Yeah. It's, it's interesting because Oventique is the most accessible one, right? Of the Caracoles, right? The other ones are like buried deeper and deeper and like to a point where it's like, I don't know. I don't know if we could get there, to be honest with you. Um, and, but I don't know. Anyhow, so it's also, they took our, it was interesting just to enter the community. We, they took our passports and like, um, they, it was also armed and guarded, right? So like all the, not all, not everyone, but the people that were standing at the entrance had guns, right? So, it doesn't, we did not feel welcomed. Right. And then the dude was like school and, or like church or like, you know, whatever. He's like, yep, there's a basketball court. 
or whatever. It was, and that's like, that was the tour. It's like, it wasn't like no questions or like any of the questions wouldn't get answered. So it was, I don't know. And I think that it's nice. It's important to realize that like why it is like that, right? Why it isn't just like open, right? Why this, because like their people have been killed and they're, they need to be protective of what's happening there. And I don't know. It felt pretty sacred for sure. Just like being on that ground in a lot of ways like this, it felt like, like if you tie it back to where, why we're talking about this, you go all the way and it's like this journey starts with, with us like back in the early two thousands. Right. And we push our way to like, like at the time I didn't even really speak Spanish that well, you know, but like, this is part of the reason I learned Spanish was to like, because it's the language of the oppressed people of this continent. Right. I mean, it's not the only language of the oppressed people, but it's like one of the languages, right. When you have the chance to learn French or Spanish, like it's to me, it, it's a revolutionary act to learn Spanish in a lot of ways. And we walked down all these lines to get to this point to make this happen. And, you know, a big reason that this happened too is to mention Julie, like pushing to like spend time in a foreign country. She's it's like, before we move to Colorado, I'd like to like live in a foreign country for a year. And she also was really interested in learning Spanish for a lot of the same reasons, but also wanting and Chiapas just like called us, you know, um, and which is interesting too, because we ended up leaving Chiapas because we got very deathly sick from the food and had to leave a little bit early because we just couldn't take it anymore. Um, yeah, I was really sick, really, really sick. So yeah, I think that that, like that moment of stepping across the line felt like stepping into the Ovantique Caracol was like, this is, this is it. This is like a different space. This is like walking into another world right now on our planet. And that, that journey was as much the destination as the destination, right? Like the way, what got us there, how we got there, like how we, moved to get to there and it like once we got there it was like yeah this is kind of like everywhere else because like really there's not that much difference between a, cut- a Zapatista Caracol and like a, a village right next door Um, because I, I if I remember correctly we stopped off at another non-Zapatista village on our way back and we got a ham sandwich right that sounds right yeah that does yeah. We ate at a little plaza in the middle of nowhere while we were waiting for our... Yes, but do you know that little town was San Andreas, where the like very famous accords between the Zapatistas, the, the EZLN, and the Mexican government like in 98 or something were signed? Those are really important agreements, and the Mexican government has like totally not lived up to the San Andreas Accords, which is... They're supposed to give the Zapatistas way more power, Um and, but they've always like tried to weasel out of those very accords. Those are like international peace accords, you know, with the whole world watching. 
So right. other countries should have held Mexico accountable as well. Huh. Well, they also have a pretty good ham sandwich. Yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would say if I can end like, or like my last thought on this is in terms of another world being possible. Um, I think there's a lot of implications, but mm, for me, this, that we did this and like we, we engage in Zappa Turismo, which is like problematic that we did that. And also to a degree, the Zapatistas are encouraging it and inviting it. And they want people to come learn and then like decolonize wherever they are, right? Like spread this message of a decolonial anti-capitalist education around the world. So that's what we did. Um, but you know, like white people going to a very, like very deep into the jungle, there's like such a history of white saviorism that I think is probably a part of some of our original impulses to go. If we're being honest with ourselves, at least for me, but we're always trying to deconstruct that and like be critical of that. So it just like opens up the question, how can we continue the revolution like their revolution to white men, us back here in the United States, what we learned, how can we take it to, to bring, you know, um, caracoles or what, whatever it is, decolonization to where we are. And it's always a very difficult question back in the, like the heart of the colonial beast. Um, but I would say one thing that to my ending words here are that the Zapatistas are under attack again um, this month the Mexican government has like shut down one of their schools and detained 91 of their students, 74 of which are women. Hmm. And um, I'll put this in the show notes. It seems like the best way to support them is like, if people are connected to international peace organizations, putting pressure on those organizations to put pressure on the Mexican government. Um, and just, probably just it's it's just go to this website and read it and just let it sit with you and like think like can i do anything from where i'm positioned i think that would be like the best thing that could happen right now so mm. yeah just gonna end with that Dave. yeah and i'll add to that like omlo um i am not remembering any of his names but Obrador, right um, Andres, maybe. Anyways, he's the president of Mexico, and Mexican politics are dicey. Like, I could talk about that for a little while. The PRD and the PRI, and like the corruption that's happened throughout history and has continued up until now, you know, up until the future wars with Chris Pratt. Um, but yeah, AMLO is was also in this like wave of like Latin American leftist saviors, right? Where you could put Chavez and um, what's the Bolivian guy's name? Morales. Morales. Right. And like, I've definitely fallen off of like knowing everything, but I do know that like much in the same way that happens in the U S when uh, a left leaning politician comes to power, a lot of, um, a lot of like quote unquote green capitalism gets pushed through really fast. Right. And I know that 
in 2019, 2020, when we were down there, Amla was pushing a lot of the development of the Lakondan jungle to be for this like massive train system, right? Yeah, that's right. And I know that that was like putting a lot of pressure on the Caracoles as well. So yeah, it's just like something to note, right? Like how it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like in a lot of ways, Amlo is kind of seen, seen as like the Mexico, Mexican Obama, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, and like, as we know, like Obama definitely had like militarized the police, put a lot of money into the prison system, you know? And like, I'm not, I don't know. We don't need to get into Obama too much, but especially at minute 55 here, but yeah, there, <laughs> yeah, there is, there's a lot that could be done, you know? And that, that idea of taking the community mentality and bringing it to our communities is really important. And like, yeah, maybe that, that thing like of interconnectedness, the, the, you know, Zapatistas hold that so deeply within them. And if, People in the United States, white people especially, saw themselves as interconnected with the rest of the world. Things would radically change, I think. Yeah. yeah. So let's all try and connect with our communities and fight the oppression that's here. Because that's, that's really what needs to happen. And the only way we can make the change happen is if we do it together, right? Yeah. And always stay like, connected with the Zapatistas, too. Because sometimes like they have campaigns where sending money is important. So, mm-hmm. yep. Yeah, and when you can, just buy your coffee from Chiapas. When you're when you're tired of the Ethiopian stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's time for a quick fix, Bob. I love it. We have these like really tough questions, and then then we go for quick fixes at the end. Yeah. Okay, Bob. Here's the question for you, and I I don't know if you'll be able to answer it as easily as not having. Um, not having eggs in the house and putting some mayonnaise on your pork, but how do you fix getting out of bed in the morning? Everyone on this planet struggles with popping out of bed in the morning. I want a quick fix on how I can get my ass out of bed and jump on my day. That is such an epic question. Yeah. I, I kind of think, okay, here's, a radical solution. Too many people are focusing on the moment of getting up. You can't focus your gaze there. You have to focus before and after. So what I mean by that is not focus on when you're waking up, but the night before. So like doing a good routine, the nighttime can very much help you in the morning. Mm. And then you want to focus on the after as well. Meaning you actually want to give yourself like a little bit of structure um, to get into, because if you have like a structure less morning, you're you're gonna fritter it away, and then you're like, oh, it's the afternoon. What what happened to my morning? You need some structure, but you don't want it to be like oppressive structure, like a like jobs can be. Um, so in one's job space, try also like try to make it a fun structure and not overly structured in the morning. You want some spontaneity as well. So that's my quick fix. Quick, quick. Quick fix. Thanks, Bob. How'd I do? Um, great. I couldn't agree more with you. And yeah, I feel really much like I am 
to the point in my life where I need that structure so much that it is oppressive. And, and as <laughs> I move in, into the summertime, I'm like, I got to let go of some of this structure. Yeah. I think your task now into the summer, and we didn't get to talk about that, but maybe next week, your summer is always next. Yep. Like the, the right balance of some structure, but not too much. Yep. So find us at Dave Peachtree on TikTok. I'll get a few TikToks up there. Oh, nice. Uh, it is summer. Yeah. Hit hit up BMAZE on BMAZE19 on Twitter. Dave Peachtree at gmail.com, thrivingdystopia.com, thriving underscore and underscore dystopia on Instagram. We are reachable. Or just send Bob a text. I'm always open to it. Yeah. Well, Dave, thanks for the app. I love you and have a great week. Love you too, Bob. Thanks for everything. What's up, Driving Crew? Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Chayetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. Our new outro song is Box Goldberg Variations, Variato 3 a 1, by Kimiko Ishizaka. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.